Let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke as we have returned to our expositions in Luke. We had started this in uh, the previous year and then took some time for Christmas and Advent on other topics. So we're back in Luke chapter 6. As you're turning, if there's anyone watching online or listening to the message, God bless you. And we invite you to join with us here in person at Clifton Park Community Church. Our sermon is titled The Great Divide and the text of scripture is in Luke chapter 6. And it begins in verse 20 through verse 26. And he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless it to all who hear Believe and obey. Amen. Amen. Jesus has gathered his disciples in this place. It's an audience that included his uh, broader followers, at least 72 or maybe close to 100 already. And he'd called out 12 to be his apostles. It also, according to verse 17, included people from Judea and Jerusalem. So that's probably Jewish people, either curious people or maybe they were followers. And then it also tells us that there were those from the seacoast, from Tyre and Sidon, most likely Gentiles as well, a mixed gathering. And in the midst of that, Jesus called his disciples to this place, this plateau, and begins to teach them. One of my earliest memories of being a student uh, was seventh grade. I loved seventh grade for some reason. I liked rock class in science, but I think my favorite one was uh, geography. And Mr. Uh, Spafford uh, taught uh, on North and South America one year. And uh, I learned about this thing called the Continental Divide. Anybody know what the Continental Divide is? that great mountain range that goes all the way north to south through our continent and then even continues through South America from north to south. As Wikipedia puts it, by far the most prominent of all the continental divides is this great divide because it tends to follow a line of high peaks along the main ranges of the Rocky Mountains here in North America and in South America, the Andes. And it's generally a much higher elevation than other 
divides geographically. It extends from the Bering Strait to the Strait of Magellan. And what does it divide? What do those mountains divide? It's not in the middle of the continent. Well, these high peaks primarily divide rainfall. These mountains create a divide that separates the watersheds. When the rain falls, on one side of the mountains, it will fl- the water flows to the west. And on the other side, it will flow to the east. On one side, it will drain into the Pacific Ocean. And on the other side, in some places, off towards the Atlantic. The rain is divided by that mountain. As Jesus gives us this sermon to his disciples, he explains blessings and woes. And in the teachings of Jesus in this text, there is also a great divide. His words come to some who are on the side of blessing and some who will be found on the side of woe. So this morning we're talking about a great spiritual divide. But praise God, those who are under condemnation can come into the light and cross that divide by the grace of God. This morning our first heading is to look at these blessings that we find here in Luke these blessings that we find here in Luke. Now, when you think of blessings or beatitudes, statements of blessings, we most commonly think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. That's the big Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went up to a high place and taught Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Matthew records it in his particular inspired way. Is this the same audience? Are these the same lessons? Is this the same sermon? Well, we know from the context here in Luke chapter 6, it says uh, Jesus had prayed in the mountain, but in verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place. And that's where this audience gathered. So Matthew's is the Sermon on the Mountain. Luke is the Sermon on the Plain. Could they be the same sermon? That's a debate that continues across all the scholars of Christianity. I would suggest, without being too dogmatic, that it is the same material, but in two separate givings. Perhaps Matthew's is given to the apostles and the inner circle of disciples gathered on the mount, And then as they came down, and as Luke tells us, others joined them from Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon. There's an influx, perhaps a synopsis. An abbreviated version is given on the plain. And that's the one Luke records. Matthew records the fuller. There are all sorts of options here. But we're looking at Luke, taking it at face values. These are the teachings of Jesus What's particular about Luke as well is that he includes these woes, W-O-E-S. 
woes, statements of warning, statements of of, uh, not quite condemnation as much as uh, uh, statements of calamity that is ahead. Warnings. Matthew's gospel doesn't have this same list. So that's why I think this is is an enlarged audience and Jesus is speaking to two large groups, this great divide. We think the teachings of Jesus here are particularly for Christians to heed and for the unbelievers to take warning. Let's look at the blessings and first the conditions. Who is it that are blessed? As he begins, he says, blessed are you who? And then he gives the condition. Then he says, blessed are you who? He does that four times. And what are the conditions? The first one is poverty. The second one is hunger. The third one is related to grief. And the fourth one seems to be about persecution. Well, first, let's make clear that when Luke says, blessed are you who are poor, comma, is he referring to literal poverty? The answer is yes. We know that Matthew's gospel, the wording is, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're looking at this verse today, here in Luke. Blessed are the poor. And as we take that literally, we take the hungry literally, and we take the mourning and weeping literally, and we take the persecution literally. And we'll do that with the woes as well. But we must not misunderstand Yes, it's literal poverty and hunger and grief and persecution. But, as it says clearly in this context, it is for Christ's sake. Notice at the end of verse 22, on account of the Son of Man. That is the context for each of these conditions. Blessed are the poor, those who are in poverty, for Christ's sake. It is poverty that perhaps was created as Christians were denied their wages or their wealth. I'm cutting you off from the inheritance because you're no longer Jewish. You're following that Jesus. No inheritance for you. Or perhaps... Riches were forsaken, as we've seen time and time again in in the book of in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, how people turn from their lucrative, sinful pursuits to more righteous behaviors. And wealth and riches were forsaken for righteousness sake, creating poverty for Christ's sake. The Bible here, hear me clearly. Especially if, if, if you're into progressive, liberation, economics, or political theory. The Bible does not say poverty is good. The Bible does not say the poor are better than the rich. The Bible has here a blessing to Christians who are impoverished for the sake of Christ. That's what it clearly means. And it's not just poverty, it's the hunger It's the sorrows that come and those that are persecuted. When people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Those are the conditions. 
So we need to think of this as a poverty accompanied by grace. Or as one person put it, a purpose-driven poverty. Yours is the kingdom. Jesus is speaking to those who have a spiritual inheritance, who have become his disciple, and that's come with a cost. Whether it's the poverty or the hunger or the sorrows on account of the Son. But each of these conditions are met with the promise of blessing. Because he does say in each case, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you. Blessed. What are the blessings? Well, the blessing is the kingdom itself. You're poor. You have no resources. You're living day in, day out. on Dependence. You will inherit from your heavenly father, the kingdom. Those that hunger now, you shall be satiated. You shall be satisfied. You shall know no want in eternity. And those who weep, those that have sorrows of heart, it says in verse 21, you shall laugh. Now let me comment here. Laughing, it does seem odd as we read it. We don't usually laugh a lot at church. Well, I do. Some of you do. What does that mean? You who weep now for you shall laugh. We take it in the sense of rejoicing. The joy and mirth of blessing. Not a frivolous laughter in the sense of rejoicing. You see, each of these promises, each of these uh, foretellings of blessing are unexpected. How do you know if God's blessing you? Well, take a look at this list. Very unexpected. Philip Ryken says, Jesus says the things no one wants poverty, hunger, sorrow, persecution, have his blessing. And the things that everyone wants, money, food, entertainment, popularity, they will never satisfy, says Phil Riken. That, that captures it. There's a great reversal here. There's a great unexpected twist. And Jesus makes it clear with his teaching, not just here, but in many times, in many parables, in many contexts. The pastor of Geneva, John Calvin, said it should be the philosophy of Christ's disciples that they should set their happiness beyond this world and above the desires of the flesh. Verses 22 and 23 have a very special promise when uh, the worst things seem to be happening, when you're reviled, excluded, and spurned as evil on account of the Son of Man. What's promised? What's promised in 22 and 23? It's rather broad, as Jesus all of us says, rejoice in that day. He's saying rejoice even still in the day when it's hard. But it leads into the future. He says rejoice and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great. So you have it now, your reward is great, and it's being held for you in heaven. So there's an already and a not yet. It's a reality. So the promise there is there are great rewards for you. And notice what else he goes on to say. Your reward is great in heaven, comma, for so their fathers did to the prophets. He says to those who are 
persecuted and afflicted for Christ's sake, there's also the reward of honor. Honor. Can I tell you something about honor here? As Del Ralph Davis says, there is the honor of belonging to a suffering tradition of the people of God. Do we know how the early Christians were persecuted? How they were arrested for preaching about Jesus? And not just arrested, they were beaten. They didn't get a court-appointed attorney. They were beaten. But in Acts chapter 5, as uh, the apostles were freed and returned to God's people, this is what it says in Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They thought it an honor to suffer. That's what these people with persecutions are promised. That's what Christians can and do experience. But Jesus goes on from these words of encouragement and uh, trying to strengthen his disciples. He goes on to speak of some woes. And to those we turn next. The woes beginning in Luke chapter 6 verse 24. But the conjunction that contrasts. But woe to you. To who? Well there's going to be a list. But we don't want to misunderstand this list either. Because present with the disciples was a very large crowd and some seekers. Some that were not yet full followers of Christ. Non-Christians we might say. Those whose hearts and minds were not yet given to following Jesus or serving him. And as I think we'll see, those who love the world more than they love Christ. J.C. Ryle describes those that are addressed here in the woes as men who refuse to seek treasure in heaven because they love the things of this world better and will not give up their money if required for Christ's sake. They prefer the joys of the world and they love the praise of men more than the praise and welcome of their creator God. To these Jesus speaks his woes And these warnings come to four groups, to the rich, to the full, to the jolly, just to use a different word, and to those pursuing popularity. Now we do want to be clear and not misunderstand, as we did with poverty, so too with wealth. It's not the collection of wealth. It's not if you have a certain amount of wealth that you're in trouble. It's neither wealth or poverty that are the problem. It's where the heart is. Poverty and wealth are both neutral. What will you do with them? How do you view them? And we do know from Scripture, just so I'm clear, God has blessed some of his great people of the past and present with wealth. We can go look at the Bible. There were the patriarchs. Abraham, for instance, extremely wealthy in the ancient world. Or how about Job? A wealthy man. How about those who were 
were filled with great joy and rejoicing, like David, the psalmist of Israel. Or in the New Testament, Paul, the author of Philippians, filled with joy. And when it talks about popularity, nothing wrong with being popular, but there's a heart issue that makes it wrong. Because we know that when Paul wrote to Timothy, he he acknowledges that Timothy uh, was well spoken of. And that an elder in the church ought to be one who is held in esteem by his community. So do look carefully at these lists. Don't be shallow as you read and try to understand God's word. Jesus does say explicitly, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Those that were trusting in their riches and looking to their riches to provide them satisfaction and meaning in life, to give them a sense of worth, Jesus says, that's all you're going to get. As Matthew records a fuller teaching of Jesus, do not store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, That's where your heart will be. So when Jesus has this warning, this this announcement of coming calamity, woe to you who are rich, he's looking to those whose heart is entangled with the love of money and perhaps the idolatry of money. The warnings come. Calamities are coming. In this list, these are the very things our neighbors are regularly pursuing. And sometimes we pursue them too. So we need to hear and weigh these warnings. Because the warnings come with the consequence. Again, another reversal. The rich, that's all they're going to get. Woe to you who are full now, whether you've been gorging and dining with the pleasures of food and life, you shall be hungry and go without. Woe to you who laugh now when you take your joy just in the things of this world, you shall mourn and weep at their loss. In the words mourning and weeping, one one can refer to the loss of others and One of them can refer to your own condition and how disappointing and grievous it is. That last one is particularly hard, isn't it? In the age of social media, in the age of Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and whatever else is coming down the pipeline. What is it that people do to respond? They like something. Or they tap and there's a heart. I love something. And and we're all excited if you're on social media when all of a sudden you're getting noticed and people are liking that and commenting. And yet Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. I think it was Phil Riken that talked about this as the warning of the calamity of popularity. And we tend to think there's nothing wrong with popularity. And again, like poverty and wealth, hunger and food, there's nothing wrong with popularity. But there is 
if it becomes your idol, if it becomes your pursuit, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. What happened to the false prophets? That's kind of cryptic. What's he talking about? People liked the false prophets. They were popular. Why were they popular? They said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They said, oh, we're not going to be in Babylon for 70 years. It'll only be a couple of years and we're out of here. The false prophets were popular. But what happens? The God of righteousness and truth judges the false prophets. As should God's people turn from them. There is a judgment. And you don't want to be that judged person. Well, as Jesus gives the blessings and the woes, as we've said since the beginning, there is a natural divide here. Into which group am I going? Into which group am I found? As one commentator puts it, this passage and these teachings are a test of the reality of our Christianity. A test. Boy, to to be a disciple and to hear Jesus teaching and all of a sudden have a test. It really calls for our self-inquiry. So on this third heading this morning, we want to talk about that, this great divide. And the first point I want to make is as Jesus gives his word and speaks this truth, which is counter to the mindset of the world, the truth of God ought to penetrate our heart. Let the word of God penetrate and divide, cleave. I hope you're familiar with these verses from Hebrews chapter 4. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 12 and 13 used to be a memory verse, and I'm not sure if everybody's got it memorized. It's certainly good to know where it is and underline it if you underline in your Bibles. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 in the ESV say this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word, the Bible, we might say, is like a sword. It goes on piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When God's word comes, it penetrates. And it it isn't just... For our academic information, oh, there it is. It comes and examines our heart. Are you poor or are you rich? It's not about an amount. Is your heart accepting your poverty for Christ's sake? Or is your heart clinging to wealth for your self-esteem? How thankful we ought to be that God's word can discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So I think that's the first thing we need to do is let this word of Christ penetrate us and examine us and expose us. 
These are disciples that Jesus is speaking to and followers that will be shaped by his word. His ministry was that of teaching and then acts of mercy. And both were required as he was training his apostles. He wanted this word to shape them and pierce their heart as with us. And as we hear this word this morning, it also comes with questions. It, it, it begs these questions. I have several questions uh, to ask of myself and to ask of you. With these blessings and these woes laid out so clearly, do you agree with Jesus? And we have to be careful because, again, the very things the world would prioritize and put on their to-do list are the things that Jesus speaks with words of warning. Do we really believe poverty and persecution for Christ's sake will bring us blessing? Or do we duck and cover? Do we dodge the spotlight? Do we fail to take a stand for Christ because it might cost us something? When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, it was when our enemies were attacking us, not when Christ called us to stand for truth. Do we really believe that riches, worldly enjoyments, and popularity among men, when sought, this is J.C. Ryle, when sought for more than salvation or preferred over the praise of God, that those things are a curse or can be a curse? This is what God's word would ask of us. And each day in your personal devotions, when you read God's word, there should be something there that penetrates your heart and lays it bare before God and examines us. God's word is like that mirror in which we can see ourselves clearly. So we need to consider these questions and answer them and respond. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, yes, I see this is true. And yes, I agree. Help me to uh, follow, to conform to your word. When God's word questions us and probes us, we are far too quick to defang God's word. Oh, well, I know better. It's really not that strong. The warning isn't really that bad. Well, my friends, the Lord Jesus used the word woe. He's not just giving financial advice. He's speaking of spiritual perils. And the scriptures have called out some who were in love with this world. That they made shipwreck of faith. But these are matters of the heart. Well as we experience this great divide. As God's word opens our heart and mind for examination. Let me also offer you consolation from Christ. The good news is here. Jesus has called those disciples in Luke chapter 6. And he has called us if we're followers of Christ. So that he might help us, that he might teach us, that he might equip us and lead us. Christ has more to say. We're going to continue in Luke 6 and on to 
other passages of Luke where we get more of this great sermon of Jesus. But at this point, let me remind you what Jesus said in his first sermon recorded in Luke. Here in chapter 6, this isn't the first sermon of Jesus that Luke records. Do you remember the first? Jesus was in a synagogue in chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke 4, verse 20, And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What was Jesus' first public sermon about? It was about being our Savior. Coming to those in our poverty, in physical and spiritual poverty, to proclaim liberty to those who are physical captives and spiritual captives, recovery of sight to the physically blind and the spiritually blind. Jesus is what the world needs. It's what sinners need Jesus. There is consolation when you see who has come and who is speaking of the blessings and the woes. It's Jesus. I like the simplicity with which Jesus spoke. It's recorded in John 14. John 14 begins with that phrase, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't get to heaven by accumulating wealth or by pursuing poverty. You get there by means of Christ. Let the Lord Jesus Christ be your consolation. May he give strength to your heart and help to your weary hands and feet. Believe the good news. Repent and believe. And ask him to shape your heart with his word. In closing, I have three words of exhortation. And uh, I think I put them on the sermon outline. Let me fill it out for you a little bit as we wrap up. The first exhortation is to wise up, hear, and heed Jesus. There needs to be a certain level of tuning out the world. Jesus is saying things here that are contrary to what the world tells you. Perhaps to what your father or your rich uncle tells you. What the newspapers tell you. What the advertisements tell you. What your uh, libido tells you. Jesus here speaks spiritual truth. So let's begin to listen. Hear and heed Jesus. I wanted to give you a scripture on that very point, and I could think of nothing better than how Psalm 1 begins. You know the first psalm in the Bible? It speaks of blessing, and it speaks to those who are wising up. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. That's who we need to be. Psalm 1 man, Psalm 1 woman. And if we're wise and we hear and heed God's word, we're going to know things like blessing is not measured by your bank account. That's what we're going to take away. Second exhortation, watch your heart. Because it's the heart that makes this great difference, does it not? There are many poor that are filled with covetousness and greed. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But if you're poor and it's poor for Christ's sake, it's determined by your heart. Here I would say what Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's the ESV. The NIV says, guard your heart. Guard it, for out of it flow the things of this life. We need to watch our heart. We know what the Bible says, but then we also have to guard our heart, not let our affections flow to the world more than to Christ. That we don't love his blessings more than the benefactor. It's hard to guard your heart. But guard it, we must. A final exhortation. We had wise up, we have watch your heart. Third, walk in the light of God's word. Walk in the light of God's word. I don't want anybody to be immobilized with fear because of the blessings or the woes. We have work to do, my friends. God has deployed us in this world. We, too, are sent into the world to make disciples, to live as salt and light. We need to walk in light of the world, of the word in the world. And here I was thinking of my favorite psalm, Psalm 119, which begins this way with blessing, words of blessing. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And in the second stanza, maybe you should read the whole psalm this afternoon. It'll take you 20 minutes. The second stanza of Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Goes on, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's it. We hear and we heed. We're guarding our hearts and we're walking, if we're walking for Christ, in the light of his word. That's why you need your Bible regularly, every day. To see clearly and to let it examine your heart. May God bless us even in our poverty, even in our hunger, even in our sorrows, and in our afflictions and persecutions, may there be blessing for all God's people.